Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And Ron... This is an exciting time of year. This is when we start seeing Easter eggs and chocolate bunnies. That's right. Spring is here, and it's all about the chocolate. (laughs) Well, we wanted to address that myth today, and we wanted to talk about the historicity of the resurrection. It is the Easter season, and as you know, Easter is the central holiday of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. It is the most important event theologically to the Christian faith. We want to take this broadcast to refocus our thoughts about the resurrection, who Jesus is, what happened when he died, and why was that tomb empty? Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. So this is an important deal. If Jesus did not come out of that tomb on the third day, we believe in vain. And some people have gotten around the resurrection issue by coming up with various theories like the swoon theory or saying that eyewitnesses of the resurrection were just hallucinations. Some have claimed the body was stolen or that it was moved. What would you say to those types of theories? Well, you know, it's interesting. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus uh, as a historical event, some remarkable things start happening when you read through the New Testament We find that these accounts about Jesus alive after his crucifixion are really compelling. And they're compelling because they don't claim to be mythology. They don't claim to be reporting something that's not true. They are reporting events that they all individually witnessed. And when we compile those events together, we see a remarkable history Mm -hmm. come together And I think the first thing that comes up in my mind when I think about the swoon theory is it was basically devised to get around the fact that Jesus really did die on that cross. Roman crucifixion was an excruciatingly painful and very effective means of executing criminals. We have extensive evidence of what Roman crucifixion is like. There are ways that they could slow the process down, and there were ways that they could speed the process up not the least of which is what the Gospels report of piercing Jesus's side with a spear and watching the fluid that came out that would tell the soldier whether the heart had ruptured or not. And actually, that's what modern medicine calls pericardial effusion. This was an authentic account because that was a medical reality that at the time they had no way of knowing. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that's amazing is to realize that if these soldiers actually allowed someone to escape from a cross that they would have to be crucified themselves. This is one of the key things that was drilled into these guys' minds, that no one escapes their execution. Jesus, by that point, had been flogged. He had been whipped. He was bleeding profusely. He was weak. And then Jesus was nailed to the cross. But as that several-hour period unfolded, these soldiers were monitoring him, Usually they would break the legs of someone to accelerate the process, but Jesus was so weak when they started and so damaged by that point. When they came and verified his death, they didn't need to break his legs. And again, these guys were experts. So to say that he simply was unconscious or even that he was in shock shows a lot of ignorance about the process itself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just untenable. Other types of theories that try to get around this, the eyewitness accounts being hallucinations, 
That's absurd because you'd have to have <laughs> over 500 people having the same hallucination. And particularly in the case of Paul the Apostle, who was known as Saul at the time, this was a man who hated everything that Jesus and Christianity stood for. So for him to have a hallucination that Jesus was alive would be contrary to everything that he was trying to do. He was trying to arrest Christianity when he encountered Jesus alive on that road. Paul also mentions these some 500 other people that had seen Jesus alive. Group hallucination, some kind of fabrication where you could get that many people to testify to something like this under penalty of execution yourself on a cross. Hallucination just makes no sense. Luke is considered to be one of the most accurate historians of the first century, if not the most accurate historian. And the book of Acts itself has over 84 historically confirmed statements. Hmm. And then we have statements about the resurrection. And it would be crazy to say somebody that's so meticulous in their authenticity and their historicity would then go out and make this kind of a claim without any support. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And and, and one of the other things that's very often mentioned about the resurrection is is they it is called or attributed to some kind of mythology. The problem with that is mythology takes a while to generate. Mm-hmm. You know, some some events that we are called that we call mythological sometimes take centuries to evolve from usually real historical incidents. But you can actually trace how they evolve from from a rather minor or insignificant historical act. And then it gets embellished and it gets expanded and it gets repeated and expanded some more. And then all of a sudden it turns supernatural or unusual. And then it turns into a myth because it's repeated in some kind of mythological statement or form. What, what we have in the gospel writers is very recent and propagated as a historical account. There's no time allowed for mythological development, so it reads, sounds, and looks like real history. A couple of the last theories that people talk about would be, one, the body was stolen. And it's interesting to note that the disciples wouldn't have had the capacity to steal the body, even if they wanted to. They couldn't overpower a Roman guard. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hmm. And neither the Romans or Jews wanted the body stolen It was in their interest to keep this under wraps and to destroy this from the start. Also, the idea that the body was moved is absolutely preposterous because the (laughs) authorities could have just produced the body and stopped the growing sect of Christianity at that exact moment. There are a lot of historical evidences that Jesus really did die, like the pericardial effusion that we mentioned, the blood and water coming from his side. The Jews had no belief that the Messiah would die in the first place, so this would be a crazy type of thing to come up with if you were a Jewish person trying to make a story about the Messiah. Hmm. And then finally, death by crucifixion was evidence to the Jews of God's curse. So nobody creating a story like this would make the Messiah die by crucifixion because that would be evidence that the Messiah was not sent by God in the first place in that culture. Yeah, Uh and in another cultural distinctive of this account is that the tomb was discovered empty by women. And if you're a first century fictional author and you want to sell your story, you don't write it around Not women. Yeah. So the the fact that Mary discovered the empty tomb first would make her the one who is either somehow moving the body, hiding the body, taking the body past the Roman guard whose whose life was on the line to protect. This isn't some kind of myth that was made up. It reads like real history. And in the first century, those women they weren't even allowed to testify in court. But somehow, the gospel writers 
because they were being honest and true, reported what exactly happened. They weren't trying to fudge anything. So what about the contradictions, people may ask? Because don't all those stories in the Gospels have little differences? What do you think about those differences, Ron, or those (laughs) divergent accounts? This is another thing that's very interesting in reading the New Testament. A lot of people point to these divergent accounts, although not contradictory, if you take the time to add them together and, and read it as one narrative. We do have these accounts compiled by these writers interviewing the eyewitnesses themselves, and they told this story, they recounted this story from their perspective, what they saw, what they experienced. So the differences between them actually make the story more believable. If somebody was to fabricate this and they all sat in a room and said, let's get our stories straight, that's one of the ways that you tell someone is lying. Exactly. So now you take their stories, you add them together, you compare it to the external testimony, to the situation at the time. These stories are talking about a real place with real circumstances of what we know about Roman law. Everything adds up to be a complete story. Those divergent accounts come together in a synopsis kind of like this. You could summarize the whole story from all the different Gospels like this. The guards at the tomb see an angel move the stone, but they fall over as if they were dead. The women then arrive and see the angel, but think that it's a young man. This is typical, and it happens in other places in Scripture as well. They hear from his own mouth that Jesus is risen. This brings some of them great joy, but they're still extremely afraid, as anyone would be in that situation. They're confused. They're bewildered. If this had just happened to me, I would be equally confused. At first, they are so scared that they tell no one. But afterwards, Mary tells the disciples that the body is gone. The young man told them Jesus was risen, but they're all emotional wrecks at this point as I would be, and they have no idea what has really happened. All they know for sure is that the body is missing. Peter and the other disciple run to the tomb and find it empty, as Mary had said. Then they return home, wondering what was going on. The women, still confused, return to the tomb, as anyone in this situation would, trying to see what really happened, to investigate further. Again, they find the tomb is empty. Then two angels appear to them and tell them about the risen Christ. After contemplating what they have just heard, They leave, searching for the risen Christ in the garden. As Mary is walking ahead of the rest of the group, Jesus reveals himself to her. Immediately afterwards, the rest of the group catches up with Mary, and they too see Jesus. He then tells them to go and tell his disciples. Mary and the other women at this point return and tell the disciples of the risen Christ. Jesus later reveals himself to his disciples, to Thomas, to the two followers on the road to Emmaus, to the Apostle Paul, and to more than 500 others. That's kind of... All the different divergent accounts brought into one. And as you can see, there's no contradiction there. It reads very much like any situation where four different people gave an account of the same event. Little bit of differences here and there, nuances we might call them, but all describing the same event. Resurrection from the dead is a pretty outrageous claim. And it takes pretty outrageous evidence. So Ron, when we talk about evidence, what kind of evidence would we be looking for? Obviously, the one thing we can't do is put this all under a microscope and look at it because it's in the past. Mm -hmm. But there are tools that we have historically that lend credence to stories like this, accounts like this. One of the things that we want to look at is what's called uh, abductive reasoning. You've heard of inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning essentially looks backwards and it looks at events and it tries to come up with the best explanation overall for that event. And here's an example. If we had a cornfield 
where we'd see that the corn is arranged and grown in rows. It's irrigated, it's cultivated, and then it's harvested. We could say, historically, that's been going on for quite a while, and there's no question about it. It's very obvious what's happening. But if we look at that cornfield and find a crop circle in it, something that's unusual or surprising, then we go into this field called abductive reasoning. We're trying to explain the unusual pattern of behavior. Not the usual, but the unusual. Not the normal, but the surprising. Obviously, to claim that a person raised from the dead and was alive afterwards, not just unconscious and came back to consciousness, but what was dead three days in the tomb and then comes back to life. Abductive reasoning says, what is the best solution overall to explain this? We've heard some of the arguments that some people would use to get around this, but none of those arguments address all of the evidence. So here's what we would say. We have to have a, an explanation that accounts for the empty tomb. The fact that after Jesus was pronounced dead and placed in that tomb, three days later, he appeared to people alive. They spoke with him. They ate with him. They conversed with him. He actually traveled across Palestine in general, in Jerusalem, in roads outside Jerusalem, a week later in Galilee, real encounters with a real person. Then you have the fact that these people who saw Jesus alive had radical changes in their life. These people were not the same as they started. They committed their life to a cause. And in that commitment, they gave up their life to continue that cause. This doesn't happen in mythology. So there must be an overarching theory, an explanation that answers all of those situations. Why was the tomb empty? Where is the body? Why was Jesus seen alive? Why did it have this impact on people? The very clear explanation that answers all of those circumstances adequately is that Jesus rose from the dead. Exactly. Any other explanation falls short of one or several of those other circumstances. And this is the power of the teaching in the New Testament that Jesus indeed rose from that grave. It is compelling. It is hard for us to wrap our head around. But historically, it is really the only tenable explanation. That's right. And it's what philosophers call Occam's razor. It's yep. the simplest theory. It would be easier for a skeptic to believe that the eyewitnesses were correct than to try and come up with 15 different stories to answer 15 different issues that he can answer no other way. Exactly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, or you can listen online at kdur.org. Again, this is The God Solution. Happy Easter. We're talking about evidences for the resurrection. So what is the evidence? I'm going to mention a little bit about the evidence. Some of this we've mentioned before, but I'm just going to kind of go through it quickly here. Gary Habermas tells us in The Risen Jesus and Future Hope that most all scholars, secular and Christian alike, agree that the following 12 points are historically accurate. Point number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Point number two, he was buried in a private tomb. Point number three, the disciples were initially discouraged. Point number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. Point number five, the disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Point number six, their lives were completely transformed. They even went on to die for their convictions. And a note about this, and we'll mention it again in a minute. Oftentimes people die for a belief, but people never die for what they know is a lie. 
Point number seven, the story of the resurrection took place very early. There was no myth that developed. This goes back to the very beginning of church history. Point number eight is that their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem, and then it spread from there. Point number nine, that the gospel from the beginning centered around the resurrection. This was the main thing Hmm. from the beginning. Point number 10 is that Sunday, because of the resurrection, became the primary day for gathering and worshiping for the new Christians. Point number 11 is that James went from skeptic to believer because of seeing Christ risen. And point number 12 is that Saul of Tarsus did the same thing, became a believer because he saw the risen Christ and became the Apostle Paul that authored more than half of the New Testament. There's a ton of evidence for the resurrection. What I just mentioned are just some of the points that Christian and secular scholars all agree upon. Yes. And Nate, the thing that's fascinated about that is you mentioned Gary Habermas, who is a Ph.D. credentialed historian himself. This is not a guy who we take lightly. Uh, He is someone who has researched this extensively himself, come to this conclusion that this is historically accurate and life-changing. And I think of people like uh, Dr. William Lane Craig at Biola University. He has explored this evidence as well, came to the same conclusion. And one of my personal favorites is Simon Greenleaf, who was himself a lawyer and actually viewed this from the idea of proving the case in court that this could be historically verified. And it changed his life doing it as well. And I think what this tells us is that there is more evidence and verifiable fact around this, historically speaking, than almost any other event in history. We go back and we think about civilization and the events that have have developed Western civilization. And in almost every case, a major event is verified by only one or two testimonies. We have very few multiple testimonials to an event or a person historically. So here we come to the New Testament. And again, it is an extreme claim that someone could rise from the dead like this. But we have more evidence to support that claim than virtually any other historical action. And that's why these evidences are so important to go through. And that's why the church has always gone back to these arguments and challenged the skeptic. Come away, look at the evidence with us, see where it leads you. And if you can explain how this happened with all these circumstances being met, then we can talk. But nobody has been able to do that. And that's why these historians, philosophers, and even lawyers have come to the conclusion that this was an actual historical event. Simon Greenleaf, who you just mentioned, actually put it this way. He said, you may choose at the end of your investigative process to conclude, I do not believe it. But he said, you may not reserve the right to say because there is not enough evidence. Mm. Pretty powerful quote. So some of that evidence, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin that sentenced Jesus to death. He is the person whose tomb Jesus was buried in. If this story were fabricated, it wouldn't glorify its own nemesis. Mm. (laughs) And that tomb would have been known by everyone. Anybody could go there and look at it. It would be like the property of a U.S. senator today. Everyone would know where it's at. They could go see it for themselves. A Roman seal was placed over this tomb, and that was a two-ton rock. It could not be moved Hmm. by a couple ordinary people. And beyond that, even if they could have moved it, breaking that seal was punished with upside-down crucifixion, something that they would not have wanted to endure (laughs) because of a lie, if it were a lie. 
Next, there was a Roman guard, the premier military force of the first century placed in front of the tomb. They were undefeatable. You could not beat a Roman guard. And in fact, the idea that they fell asleep and allowed the disciples to steal the body is preposterous. First of all, the Roman guard had 12 different members and they slept in shifts. So there was never an issue of them becoming tired in the first place. The ones that were awake would alert the ones that were sleeping to any danger and they would fight off the danger. And if they did fall asleep on the job, they were also burned to death with a fire started with their own clothing. Again, <laughs> a lot of reason not to fall asleep on the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So many of these excuses around the resurrection really don't consider the historical circumstances in which this took place. These were trained professionals. Uh, I've even heard it suggested that the Roman soldiers that were assigned to Palestine at the time were kind of the riffraff of the army, and that's not the case at all. Pilate was a ruthless man, and he insisted that the Romans send qualified people to keep the Jews under control. So these guys were not fluffs. These Mm -hmm. were serious guys who took their job seriously and uh, paid serious consequences if they messed up. They did not fall asleep. And what's phenomenal about this is the story that they fell asleep is the earliest extra-biblical account that we have. We do not have another account saying that their body was there. There's no account saying the body was there. Either you believe the Christian account that the body was gone because of resurrection, or you believe the Roman and Jewish response, which we have outside of Scripture, saying the body was stolen. Yeah. Now, again, that implies that there was no body. So even the hostile sources of the day admitted the reality and the fact that the body was gone on that third day and beyond any possible explanation, it was gone. Another thing to keep in mind is that when we talk about the idea of the body being stolen, you know, to a Jew, to touch a dead body was to condemn yourself to uncleanness. So the idea that they would go in and take this body, tiptoe past the Roman guard, or maybe even try and pay them off, is just, again, None of this makes sense. This isn't how people behaved in those days. We kind of romantically think about sneaking dead bodies around and make movies about it today. But in the first century of that culture, a Jewish person does not touch a dead body, particularly one that's been sitting in a tomb overnight or two or three days. It would condemn themselves to uncleanness. Mm-hmm. And then to get that past the, the Roman soldiers just doesn't work. It's not an acceptable model. I wanted to list a few more evidences before we move on. Jesus' resurrection was prophesied both in the Old Testament and by himself. That's phenomenal. The darkened sky that we're told about in Matthew 27 is actually documented in history. The Christians' creed, the earliest documentation of the Christians' beliefs and observations, mentioned the risen Christ. The apostles used Christ's resurrection as proof for the gospel, often telling people, you yourselves know that he raised from the dead. If this was not common knowledge, they would not have spoken like that. The tomb was found by women, which at the time their testimony wasn't even accepted in a court of law, like we discussed earlier. The disciples' unbelief in the story of the resurrection, all these criteria of embarrassment were terrible for a fabricator. These embarrassing details would have been omitted from a fabrication. They easily could have said he rose spiritually. Nobody could debunk that. Nobody could say, no, he didn't. They could say it was spiritual. Maybe didn't see it, but we did. Mm. But they went all the way and said he rose physically. Prove that he didn't if you want to disagree with us. 
And all the Jews had to do is produce the body. All the Romans had to do is produce the body. It all would have gone away instantaneously, but none of them could. The tomb was empty. So we've talked about a lot today. We started out by talking about theories that try to get around the resurrection. We realize that those just don't cut it. He really did die. He really was buried. He really did raise from the dead. We went from there to talk about what some people would say are contradictions in the biblical accounts. Those are really divergent details. It's actually what any court would look for to find whether or not the story is authentic. They would look for divergent details even today. We went from there to talk about several different evidences. There's no way we could have addressed all of them on this short show. Hmm. But we talked about a few of the evidences for Jesus' resurrection. So what's the reason for everything that we're talking about today? Like we said in the beginning, if Christ didn't raise from that grave, all of our belief is in vain. But if he did, there is a hope for you today. Hmm. And if he really did raise, and the history and evidence says he did, then you and I have a hope that we too can and that we can live forever in the eternity that Jesus promised us. The evidence convincingly confirms that the resurrection occurred. Just like the disciples went from unbelieving cowards to confident, believing, trusting, secure in their faith in him because of what they saw, we too can have that kind of security in our faith. If you are a believer, Easter is not a celebration of bunnies, chocolate, and spring, but instead it's a remembrance of all that we have in Christ, the greatest joy and only true hope in this depraved world. Why we are so ashamed to share this good news is a tragic peculiarity. (laughs) Imagine having one global solution for every moral, social, and political problem and refraining from sharing it and even being apologetic about believing it. We do even worse as Christ's solution solves even more, and in a complete and eternal sense. Do you really believe what we're celebrating today? If so, nothing will stop you from sharing that with the people around you. Now, if you're just searching, if you don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, Ron, what would you say to the person that's out there that says, this was really interesting, I'm searching, what next? What I like most about the resurrection is that it validates everything that Jesus said and did when he was here on earth with us. As you read through the New Testament, and I think that's what I would start to do is read through the Gospels, learn about who Jesus is, what he taught, what he did, even when he predicted his own death. Because the point of that death, he told us, was to provide a way for us to know God personally. It's not just a religion. We've talked about that in the past. It's not spirituality. It is an actual invitation by the God of the universe to get to know him on a personal level. What Jesus said was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when we look at that claim, in our modern culture, we want to resist it. And it requires an unusual amount of authority to make that claim, to say that I am the only way to God. And he proved it when he rose from that grave. And the fact that he's alive, he paid the price for our sins, and in a sense, paid the admission for us to enter heaven with him. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's where the power is. So I would say if this is intriguing to you, open your Bible and read. If you open that Bible, look for the words of Jesus that talk about how we know God and understand that he is actually providing the way to know God for us. 
when we accept him into our hearts, we accept the truth of who he is and what he did, he says that he comes to us and fellowships with us. He engages us in our lives. He forgives us our sin, and he empowers us to live. That's what Christianity is all about. It's not a Sunday morning religion. It is an everyday experience of knowing and loving God. It's so true. I would also encourage you to go to an Easter service this morning where you will hear more about this story Mm -hmm. and where you will hear how you can have that kind of relationship with the creator of this universe. If you don't have a church that you feel comfortable with, let me encourage you to go to Grace Church. It's down on Florida Road in the middle of all that construction. (laughs) It's at 1440 Florida Road if you want to map quest it. Their services start at 1045 this morning. And they'll be having a great Easter service. I would encourage you to stop by, tell Bob and Justin and Keith and all of them that we sent you and that we say hi. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The God Solution. We really talked about a lot today, Ron. Mm -hmm. And this was some good stuff. And we hope that you would take the time, if you know about the resurrection and know who Jesus is, enjoy him this morning, worship him this morning. And if you don't know, take the step of inquiry that says, I've got to find out more about this. Please tune in next Sunday at 8.30 a.m. right here on KDUR to listen to the show. And please visit eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Or look for us on Facebook. We're on Facebook now. You can find us and follow what's going on. Let us know what you think about this program. Leave us some comments if you'd like to discuss more. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And we hope you have a wonderful Easter. (laughs) 